Definitely want to wish Happy Father's Day to our fathers here today. This is a special day for me now, has been the last few years, and I have enjoyed it. I wish my family could be here with me, but my wife is a nurse, and we found out that the time that she would have gotten off yesterday would have put us getting into McMinnville sometime around 1 in the morning. And I told her I didn't think that'd be best, considering I have to speak three times today. And so she wishes she could be here. But we are so thankful for the Bybee Branch congregation. You were one of our best supporters while we went through the Memphis School of Preaching. We enjoyed every time we had an opportunity to be with you and to see you. And it is an absolute pleasure to be with you again. And I am thankful for what you do for the Memphis School of Preaching, for GBN, for works like that, that are trying to do their best in the brotherhood to continue to spread the gospel. And Bybee Branch plays a part in that. For every student you support, for every work you support, you play a role in the gospel being spread farther than just McMinnville, Tennessee. And so I thank you for that. In part, the education that I received is because of you. And so thank you so much for that. And I'm thankful to be with you today. I'm sure you wish Tony was here, but I'm glad to be here. And I wish Tony was here too. I love being around Tony. And I know he's going to do a great job tonight over at the graduation at Memphis School of Preaching. Now, when I was a little boy, we didn't have a cookie jar. But we did have little Debbie snacks and things of that nature that my mom would tell us not to get into because it would spoil our dinner. And yet, my brother and I, we would find a way to get into those little Debbie cakes. And so my mom started hiding them. My mom's not very good at hiding things. Um, We found them every time. And so she always wondered where they were going. They were going to us. And so she finally had to get Dad to tell us to stop doing it. And you know my father. He has a way of authority about him. And he convinced us not to do that anymore. But perhaps when you were growing up, you had a cookie jar. And you were told not to get into the cookie jar before dinner because it would spoil your dinner. Today, I want to talk about, spiritually speaking, things we don't need to get into. It just happens that when I was asked last year to speak on this summer series, I was already developing a series called Don't Get Into Things, and gossip was already planned as a part of that. And when I was offered the opportunity to be here all day, I said, perfect, I've got two other sermons that fit with what I've already planned to talk about tonight. And so this first lesson, Don't Get Into Things Without Authority. It is so important to have authority. When you look at the definition of authority, it is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience, or the power to influence others, especially because of one's commanding manner or one's recognized knowledge about something. I know that our authority is God, and I know you believe that our authority is God. But outside of these walls and the walls of the congregations that are meeting today, This world does not primarily believe that God is its authority. You don't need to do anything but to look on the news and to ask around, and you'll find out very quickly that people don't believe God is the authority. People don't think God has a right to tell us how to live our lives. And a lot of times when we look out into this world, we find people bucking up to the authority of God. Why? One unknown author wrote back in June of 2013... Ten ways to test obedience. Now, I'm not going to go through all ten. But by way of introduction, I want us to look at a few because it pertains to the lesson that we're going to have today. The first reason that he gave was 
do you ask reasons when you have something that you requested turned down? I remember when I was working for the Gospel Broadcasting Network, not every idea is accepted. Not every idea can be accepted. And now as a gospel preacher, sometimes I sit in meetings with the elders and we talk about different things and ideas are floated. Not every idea is executed. It can't be. And so sometimes requests are turned down. How do you respond to that? You know, obedience is accepting no as a final answer. Now, if it's something that's very important, sure, you have ways to discuss. But when the final answer has been given, obedience is accepting that and moving on. No questions, appeals, discussions, nothing. It's just okay, and we move forward. And when I look at the obedience to God's commands in our world, we have a lot of people asking why they can't do certain things. Instead of just saying, okay, and saying, God, you know better than I do. I'm going to do what you say. A second question that was asked was, do you ever give reasons why you cannot do a job? Someone asks you to do something and you start to list all the reasons why you can't do it. Obedience is finding ways to overcome obstacles. When the Lord told us to do, fill in the blank, He expected that we would be able to do it. And when I try to make different reasons and different excuses as to why I can't do it, I'm making God out to be someone that doesn't understand my life. And that doesn't understand how difficult life is. But really what I'm saying is, God, I have better things to do than what you've asked me to do. A final or next to last reason is, do you ever have to redo a job you did the wrong way? But when I was growing up, all the time. Okay. Mom and dad would tell me to clean my room. And really what I heard was stuff all your stuff in your closet and under your bed. And so that's what I would do. And I was always amazed at how smart my dad was when he would come in and the very first place he'd go look is the closet. And he'd open and all that stuff would fall out and he'd say, "Uh uh-huh, I thought so. And what's under your bed? I don't want to say. Well, that tells me all I need to know. Clean this room right. And I spent so much of my life as a young boy and even as I got a little older trying to think of the easiest way out rather than just doing the job correctly the first time. And if we do the job correctly the first time, we save ourselves so much time and so much trouble. But if I had applied the knowledge that I have now about how tasks can be done quickly to when I was 10 years old, I would have taken 35 minutes to clean my room and been done the rest of the day. Instead, I took 20 minutes to shove everything in any way, shape, or form that I could, and then another hour and a half to try to get it all out and put it where it went. See how foolish that was? But I had to redo the job because I did it the wrong way. But obedience is following orders the first time that they're given. There is no, well, I didn't do it the right way. I need to go back and do it again. But finally, we ask the question, do you ever think obedience is foolish? A job, that is. Do you ever think a job is foolish? I'll admit, GBN Live, when it first started, and I've told Mark this. Mark Teske's my father-in-law, but when he was my boss, he wasn't yet my father-in-law. And we built the set for GBN Live, the very first one. And there was a part of the set that we didn't stain the wood. And I thought it looked so ugly. Looking at it, I thought, this is not going to look that great on camera. I went to him and said, are you sure you don't want us to stain this part of the set? Yes. Okay. And I walked away thinking, it's not going to look great. 
And then we started doing the tests with the cameras and putting it on and trying to set up the shots. And I realized, boy, that looks fantastic on camera. And I actually went back to him unprompted and just said, look, I, I want to tell you something. I got to apologize, though you don't know that I was thinking this, but I, I just want to say you guys are so smart and know a whole lot more than I do because I did not think that was going to look, look that great. See, I thought it was foolish what we were doing. But obedience is doing a job and understanding it later. Making sure you do what is required of you and then later on you can ask, or, oh, I see now why we did it this way. I didn't do that back when I worked at GBN and I realized how foolish I was. In our lesson today, we're talking about Saul. I'm assuming you gathered that from the scripture reading. But you know, Saul had a lot of authority and still abused the authority that he had. God gave him authority over the children of Israel as their king, and Saul still thought that wasn't enough. I want us to first notice that Saul abused worship. Saul abused worship. In our reading, we found that Samuel was delayed, according to 1 Samuel 13 and verse 8. Saul waited seven days. That, that's a pretty long time to wait. I don't think you would have waited seven days if I didn't show up on time this morning. I think you would have been calling and making sure that nothing had happened to me. But Samuel says, I'll be there, and that's exactly the time that he said, seven days, all right, I'll wait, I'll wait seven days. I'm patiently waiting. But then you notice that it says Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And why didn't he come to Gilgal? I don't know. I'm not given the reason why he didn't come to Gilgal. But what I am told is that because he was delayed... There was an issue presented. And this issue that presented itself was that Saul decided to take matters into his own hand and to, and to offer a sacrifice that he decided to offer. Saul looked and said, look, Samuel's not here. He's not here and I'm going to offer this sacrifice now instead of doing what I should do, which is wait for the man of God who is the only authorized person to give this sacrifice to come and offer it. And therefore, Saul sinned before God and abused his authority as a king. Saul understood that Samuel was the one that needed to do it. But I want you to notice what verse 9 gives me the reason. 1 Samuel 13, 9 says, Bring me a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, what I'm told later, and we're going to see in just a few minutes, is that Saul's determination was, well, we've got to go into battle, and I have to make supplication to God before I go into battle. You know, I hear people do that today in the denominational world. They say, well, we've got to do such and such, and so we're going to pray to God that we can do it. I saw years ago now, when I believe her name is Lauren King, first female minister at a church of Christ. And one of the very reasons that their eldership gave for hiring her was they prayed to the Lord and they asked God to bless their decision. I don't believe he did. I don't believe he did. But in their mind, he had. And I hear people all the time say things like that, and I'm starting to wonder, as I study through the Bible, Saul had a determination that he was going to do the right thing. We're about to go into battle. I've got to make supplication to God. Yes, but you've got to do it the right way. Nadab and Abihu were worshiping God, were they not? But they offered strange fire that the Lord had not commanded. 
And what if the strange fire was just they didn't light the fire the way God had commanded? It still was strange according to the text in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. Therefore, they were wrong. Even though they were trying to worship God, they were wrong. And Saul's mindset of deciding to offer this sacrifice was wrong. Now, if only somebody had been wise enough and brave enough, I will admit, to have said to Saul, are you sure you want to do that? You're you're not the authorized person to offer a sacrifice. Saul, shouldn't we wait for Samuel? But nobody spoke up according to what we're told. And so Saul offers this burnt offering. Samuel then shows up and is detested by what Saul had done. It's just incredible how irony works, isn't it? As soon as Saul finished offering this offering, guess who comes walking up but Samuel? Patience is a virtue, and if, if Saul had just had about 20, 30 minutes or however long more patience, we could have avoided this chapter going the way that it did. And Samuel shows up, and Saul comes out to meet him, that he could greet him. I know the book of Numbers tells me in Numbers 32.23 that your sins will find you out. And like I said, irony is pretty interesting to look at. And as soon as Saul is finished with this offering, here comes Samuel to find out what he's done. And when Saul goes out to greet him, it's like he has no real clue of what he's just done. And if he does know, he's trying to sweep it under the rug. But notice what it says in verse 11. Samuel looks at him and says, What have you done? What did you do? Why did you do this? Well, when I saw that the people were scared... You know what? Good leaders own their actions. But you're going to notice in this lesson alone, Saul could not own his own actions without some heavy arm twisting. Because when I saw the people were scattered from me, and you, you know, Sam, if you really think about it, it's your fault. You didn't come in the allotted time that you gave us. You gave us seven days. So if you really want to blame somebody, maybe you ought to look at yourself. Because had you shown up, I wouldn't have thought to do this. Why is that the mindset of so many people? If you really want to think about it, it's your fault. Didn't Adam say the same thing to God in Genesis 3? You know, God, if you really want to point fingers, it's that woman that, uh, by the way, who made Eve? Let's say, oh yeah, you made Eve. So really, it's your fault if you think about it. That woman that you gave me, she's the reason this is all happening. So in a roundabout way, God, it's your fault. I'm blessed to work with a minister at Somerville named Ryan Manning. And he's a graduate of the school as well. And he has a phrase, I know it's not original with him, but he says it all the time when we're talking about certain things. Own your actions. And if people would just own their actions, this could have been avoided too. Because had Saul simply said, you know what, you're right, I I messed up, I shouldn't have done this. This probably wouldn't have been as bad as it turns into. But instead, he's trying to sugarcoat everything as it's not his fault. He's the victim. He's not the victim. 
Samuel is detested at what he had done. And God has determined something. What's God determined? In verse 13, Samuel says to Saul, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. And now verse 14, Your kingdom that God gave you, it's not going to continue. Your days are numbered as king. I wonder what Saul's face looked like when he was told that. But the same God that put him in position of authority has the right to take him out of that position of authority. And we have to be very careful in the Lord's church, and I'm thankful that this congregation doesn't have this problem, but there are congregations out there that do. We have to be very careful in the Lord's church that just because God's not going to say to an eldership, you're no longer an elder, that doesn't give the elders the right to do whatever they see fit to do and to break commandments. There is still a chain of command. Saul had broken it, and therefore he lost his kingdom. It is going to be much worse than losing a kingdom If we have elderships, if we have ministers, if we have members and deacons and other people that are are positioned in the congregation to lead and to be successful, if they don't submit to God's authority because their soul will be lost. They won't lose a kingdom. They'll lose the ability to go be in the kingdom. But Saul's kingdom is now taken from him because he's not kept what the Lord commanded him. Now, I want us to notice for a second that while Samuel is not a priest, and we know the Bible typically tells me that only a priest can offer a sacrifice, right? Wrong. Believe it or not, there were other people who were not told that were priests that offered sacrifices. For instance, the judges offered sacrifices at times. Gideon in Judges 6, 25 through 27 offered a sacrifice before God. The priests as well, of course, offered Eli in 1 Samuel 1, 3, and also chapter 2 and verse 11. But then I'm told that prophets of the Lord also offered, and that is what Samuel is. And according to 1 Samuel 16, 4 and 5, he has the right to offer. Well, how could he do that? Samuel was a Levite, 1 Samuel 1, 1, 1 Chronicles 6, 33 through 38. Gideon, when we just talked about a moment ago, he was of the western half-tribe of Manasseh, And while he was not a priest, he was given a direct order from God to offer a sacrifice. And God, who made his law, has the right to alter and to change his law as he sees fit. And therefore, when God told Gideon to offer, Gideon has the right to offer. And when God lets Samuel offer, Samuel has the right to offer. And what I see here is that only Saul waited. He wouldn't have lost his kingdom. Had only he waited, he wouldn't have lost it. But then, just a few chapters later, in chapter 15, he abused authority, and it was the last straw. I'm told in the very first part of this that there was a command given. This command was to go and to utterly destroy who? Was told to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Don't spare a thing. Now, I'll tell you another little story on me because I can make fun of myself. I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't make fun of me. Um, when I was little and my dad finally told me, you're old enough to start taking the trash out for us. We want you to do that. 
first couple of times I did it, I did a really good job. And then I started noticing, well, that doesn't look too full. I'll just leave it. And then the next week I'd say, it's not that bad yet. I'd leave it. If I'm going to take the trash out from the whole house, that means that every room that has trash in it, whether it's in the can or needs to be in a can, is to be taken out, put in the trash can, and carried to the end of the street. Otherwise, I'm not fully doing my job. When God told Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, that meant that the only way Saul could have done the command of God properly was if every single part that God had told him to destroy was destroyed. But then, and I put carrying in quotes because he doesn't carry out the command, but you see this carrying out of the command where he gathers the people together. He goes down and they start to fight the Amalekites, but in verse 9, also verse 8, he takes the king, Agag. Wait a minute. Is Agag an Amalekite? Well, he'd have to be, wouldn't he? He's their king. So how come he's allowed to live? Evidently, Saul thought he should live. He spares Agag, the king, and he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. It was not that they didn't understand God's command. It was not that they said, God, we really didn't know what you meant when you said to destroy them. They were unwilling to destroy them. And there are people today who are unwilling to do what God has told them to do. Samuel is told by God in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 10 that the word of the Lord comes to Samuel and the Lord is concerned. And he says, I want you to go and see Saul because I greatly regret that I've set him up as king. He's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And this bothered Samuel. A lot of us, if not all of us, know of people, whether we were close to them or whether we weren't, that at one time did such a great job in the Lord's church as Christians, as ministers, as elders, but then they fell away, and it hurt us, and it still hurts to think about it. This bothered Samuel because he didn't want this to be Saul's legacy. And evidently he and Saul were close enough to where this was really bothersome to Samuel. But he then goes and sees Saul and he calls him out for what he's done. And I'm not going to look at all of these verses here one by one, but I want us to look at a couple of things here. I want us to look at sin versus righteousness. In the first place, verses 12 through 13, sin tells us that we're acceptable. Because when Samuel comes to see Saul, Saul says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But we know he hadn't. Sin tells me I'm acceptable to God. God's not going to care if you do whatever you want. I mean, he wants you to be happy, doesn't he? You'll be fine. Sin tells us that we're acceptable. But righteousness shows me how to be acceptable. In verse 14, Samuel says, What is the bleeding of the sheep that I hear and the lowing of the oxen? Righteousness shows me how to be acceptable. If Samuel hadn't heard those things and they had utterly destroyed them, 
he would have been righteous before God. He would have actually performed the command. Righteousness tells me how to be acceptable and shows me how to do it, where sin just says, you'll be okay. But then sin tries to justify, because that's what he does in verse 15. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared. Doesn't that sound familiar? Same as he said in chapter 13. The people did this. I'm sorry, who's king? I don't remember a time where the king was run by the people. And that the kingdom was run by the people. According to what we know of the Old Testament, the king was in charge. Therefore, if the king had determined that they weren't going to do it, they wouldn't have been able to do it. So it's not the people's fault, Saul. It's yours. Sin tries to justify. Righteousness needs no justification. It's already just. It doesn't need to justify itself. It is already just. When you look at verses 16 through 19, Samuel starts to call out to him, and he says, I want to tell you what the Lord said to me. Okay, speak on. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And didn't the Lord anoint you king over Israel? And now the Lord sent you on a mission. And he says, go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. And you can't even do that? And this is what it is. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? The things I'm hearing, they should be dead. And Agag should be dead. Why? Because God gave you a mission and you didn't complete it. And then I'm told that sin causes us to point fingers. Because in verse 20 and 21, he tries to do... And it's amazing how we do this because I've been there and I know you have too. But I have obeyed the voice of God. I did do it. Look, I've gone on the mission that God sent me. And notice how this starts to unravel. He says in verse 20, I've gone, I've obeyed the voice, and I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Really? Saul, are you feeling okay? You brought back who? Who'd you bring back? Agag, king of Amalekites. And I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Then he should be dead. He shouldn't be brought back. Well, I brought him back, but the people, again, he blames the people. They took the plunder. They took the best of the things which they should have utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. See, here's our noble cause. We're going to use these things to sacrifice to God. God doesn't want them. He'd already told them that they weren't profitable. Therefore, if they had offered them to God, he would not have accepted their offering. Let me make a modern-day application really quickly. When the Bible tells me to worship God in spirit and in truth, and when the Bible tells me how to worship God, anything else is just like those oxen, is just like those sheep, is just like the spoil. It is unwanted and will be unacceptable to God. No matter how sincere we think we are, no matter how much we want to please Him, if we want to please Him, we need to do what He asks. And if Saul really wanted to please God, and if it really was the people's fault, he would have told the people not to do it. But Saul thought he knew a better way. So he points fingers. But righteousness is following God's ultimate commands, verses 22 and 23. 
But then I'm finally told in verses 24 through 31 that sin robs us of all that God gives us. Takes everything from us. I'm going on four years this month of being diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and that has taken a lot from my health. It's not been pleasant. It's been difficult at times. And that disease has robbed me of a couple of things that I loved doing. I, I, lo- I know this is going to sound weird to say, but I love salad. It's one of my favorite things to eat. And I can't eat it anymore. Because fruits and vegetables don't sit well with people with Crohn's. They actually hurt the individual. So I have to be very careful when I eat certain things. It's been three years now since I've had a salad. And not because I haven't wanted one. I've gone places before and there's a salad bar. Been visiting at a gospel meeting or something and one of the elders will say, Go get you a salad. Don't tempt me. (laughs) Because I will and I don't need to. My wife, when we go out to dinner, if she orders a salad, I give her a lovingly dirty look and tell her, thanks a lot. And she even has gotten to a point now where after she orders it, she looks at me and goes, sorry. It's robbed me of things that I love. Sin does the same thing. It robbed Saul of his kingdom that God had given him. God gave Saul this kingdom. It was a blessing. And Saul looked at it and said, Eh, I'll do my own thing. And because of his sin, he was taken from that position of leadership. But then the true carrying out of the command occurs in verses 32 through 35 when Samuel calls for King Agag. And I I don't want to be graphic when I preach, but the Bible says that he hacked him into pieces. Samuel was going to do what God wanted Saul to do, whether Saul would do it or not, because God's commands have to be carried out. And no, Samuel was not some bloodthirsty murderer who was trying to be evil. I'm told, and a study of the Amalekites tells me how wicked they were. And God said that they needed to go. Now, as we think about that, You might remember a time when the Babylonians carried away the Israelites and Habakkuk asks God, how can you use a nation like Babylon? And I'm told in the book of Habakkuk that God says to him, I'm going to work a work that if I were to tell you, you wouldn't believe it. Don't try to tell me the plan when I'm the one that orchestrated it. I know what Babylon's purpose is, and I know their end, too. And they will end. But their wickedness doesn't trump the wickedness that you've done as a nation, too. And you deserve punishment, and therefore I sent Babylon to take you. And I know from the study of scriptures that Babylon did fall, just as God predicted it would. What are some lessons that we can learn from this text? I cannot go over God's authority even if my goal is good. Saul stated, I just want to use these things to worship you, God. What if an eldership tells me not to do something but my goal is good? If the eldership is doing the right thing, I am sinning. 
by going against the authority of the elders and the authority of God who put those elders into that position. And so I need to back down long enough to let them work and to trust that if it doesn't work the way that they want it to work, they'll take another step and another action to make it work properly. But just because it seems like a good motive didn't make it one. Now, I know that there are people who had so great motives in their mind and it seems so noble to them. And they're good excuses in their mind, but they were still sinful. Now understand, the examples I'm about to give, I don't condone in any way, shape, or form. But understand that what I'm getting at is, to the people that orchestrated and carried them out, they thought it was a good idea. Okay? The Holocaust. The people who helped slaughter innocent people only did it because they thought it was the right thing to be doing. Their motive in their mind was good, but it didn't make it good. It didn't make it good. What about 9-11? That hits a little closer to home for us, doesn't it? And the only reason that those people did what they did was because they were trying to please their religion, their God didn't make it right. You might remember the Columbine shooting from years ago. Doesn't take much but a documentary to know that the reason they went into that school that day with those weapons was because they had been bullied and they wanted to get back at the bullies. And they didn't like what they what had happened to them and therefore they said this is how we'll get back at them. Their motive in their mind was good, but what they did was not. And God tells me that just because my goal in my mind is good doesn't mean that what I'm going to do is good. I cannot use worship as an excuse to disobey God. The people wanted me to spare the livestock and the king. I figured we could use them for worship, but what had God said? Utterly destroy the Amalekites. When God tells me to do fill in the blank, that's what I've got to do whether it's easy or not. Because I must do all the Bible says, no matter what. But I want to do this. I want to do that. But the Bible says I can't. So God's just some mean, old individual who doesn't want us to have fun, who doesn't understand the times, who can't get with the times, and we just need to wait for God to understand and catch up with us, right? That's what some would have us believe. But that's not the truth. Some people would say, it's not fair that I can't do this, so I'm going to do it anyway. You can do that. But is that true obedience? Is true obedience just doing the things that I say are fair in the Bible? Is true obedience just doing the things that I look and say, I agree with that, I like that, I'm going to follow it? No, obedience is following the law no matter how I feel about the law. Look, I drove yesterday, and this was really tough on me because I don't like sitting on the interstate for a long time. On 40, I sat for an hour, drove seven miles in one hour. I was very, very frustrated by that. 
I sat behind an 18-wheeler with my seatbelt on and in the lane that I was told I was supposed to be in. And you know what I'm about to tell you was happening. Who's going in the wrong lane? All the people that are making my life much harder. <laughs> because if they would just do what's right, we could get through this a lot easier. But because you're going to go log jam the front, now i got to sit here longer. Thanks a lot. But I did what the law required me to do, even though I didn't want to. And believe you me, I thought about it. Because I saw them doing it, and I thought, man, it would be so much quicker in some ways for me if I'd just get in that lane, drive as far up as I have to, and then get over at the last second. It'd be so much easier and more comfortable if I didn't wear a seatbelt, and I could have done those things. But suppose a police officer decided to pull me over for being in the wrong lane, could have. Suppose not wearing my seatbelt, I got into an accident, and I could have. I could have died. I don't like the seatbelt. I've gotten used to it, but I still don't like it. I wear it because, not just that the law requires it, but I understand if I don't do what the law says, my life could be in a lot more danger than just getting a ticket. I do all that the Bible says, no matter what. No matter how I feel, no matter what I think, because even the disciples thought that some of Jesus' teachings were hard to understand or hard to execute in their mind. And, and they said in one situation on marriage, Lord, if what you said about marriage is true, it is better for the people not to marry. If it's really as restrictive as you've just said that it is, then... We don't want to get married. And then also about eternal life. In John 6, there were many disciples who said to God, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And as Jesus began to, began to talk to them, at the very end in John 6, 66, I'm told that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Because of a hard saying. And how many people today... You sit down, you might study the Bible with them, and you're great all the way up until you talk about baptism is required for salvation, right? And the moment you mention that, here's a phrase that I've heard before, and I know you'll hear it too. But my fill-in relative's name was not baptized. Are you telling me that they're lost? I was privileged to do GBN Live this past Thursday night, and we talked about salvation. And the point is made in Acts 10, 3 through 6, that if I take everything else out of the Bible that is written, and I just read Acts 10, 3 through 6, I still know that Cornelius is lost. Though he was a good man, though he feared God, though he gave alms, though he did all these things, he was lost. How can I know that? Because in Acts 10, 3 through 6, God tells him, you go call for Peter and he'll tell you what you must do. And what Peter told him he needed to do was become a Christian. Emotion is so difficult to get past at times, but emotion cannot dictate how I look at the Bible. It can't. I must do all the Bible says no matter what. Because I love the law and the one who gave it. Finally, I must own my shortcomings and admit when I'm wrong. I don't know 
what would have happened to Saul had he done this, but I know it wouldn't have been near as bad as it ended up being for him. Because I remember when I was younger and when I would get into trouble, if I would try to lie and get my way out of it by saying I really hadn't done what I, what I said I was going to do, my dad would tell me it would have been a lot easier on you had you not done that. You made this worse on yourself by lying to me. You were going to get punished, yes, but now I've got to punish you for lying too. And so I need to admit when I fall short, that can be a tough pill to swallow. It is difficult at times to say, I'm, I'm wrong. But that's what has to happen. If I admit that I'm wrong, I'm on the way to doing what is right. Don't get into things without authority. It's not going to help. You remember when we started this lesson, we talked about asking for reasons when our request is turned down or giving reasons why we can't do a job or ever think that we have to redo a job the wrong that we did the wrong way or that a job is foolish? What's our opinion on the Word of God this morning? Is it that it is right and I'm going to follow it? Or are we going to say... Maybe God doesn't know what he's talking about. If that's our attitude, we've already lost. We just don't know it yet. I don't have authority to change what God has written because I can't make a universe. I can't create human life. I can't send my son to die for it. But I know of one who did. Therefore, since I can't and I don't know of anyone else who can, I bow to the one who can. And I hope you will too. And maybe you're here this morning and this has been a problem. You've done things without authority or you haven't really looked at the authority of God as the real reason we do things. That God has authority over us. You can get your life on track. Perhaps you're not a child of God. You want to become one. You can hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and pull those out of a hat. That's all throughout the book of Acts. That's what they did. And if I do what the first century Christians did, I'll be just like them. Saved all the same. Maybe you've done that, but like Simon the sorcerer, you have stumbled and sinned after becoming a Christian. You don't have to get back into the water. Simon wasn't told, well, I guess that baptism didn't stick. Come on, let's go. No, he was told, you repent and pray, Acts 8. And perhaps you need prayer today. Whatever need you have, won't you come as together we stand and sing.